1: so let's start this show jim with our version of a pledge drive and a shout out to ira glass who does this great thing on public radio where he says if you like what you hear and you want us to keep doing it then show us your support for selfish reasons for yourself
2: wait wait a minute we're not asking for money no we're asking for love (laughs) we're asking for involvement (laughs) engagement you can subscribe to us, download the podcast, leave ratings and reviews on iTunes, Google or whatever podcast platform you use. All of that support and involvement is really great for our visibility and be part of this movement, this push for more communication, more discussion of difficult issues from various perspectives. That's what how do we fix it is all about and we want you to be part of that.
4: Now it's time for me to talk to you, right? And I could talk to you about my differences with you and what I believed about you, even though I've never met you. Oh, but,
1: surely you thought I was a nice guy.
4: Right, from New York, right? The rude white male from New York, right? Who don't talk to people. So that's, right, exactly. But now I feel I'm comfortable I'm to do that, right? <laughs>
1: Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better
5: place. How How do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it?
1: Bullying and bluster. I kind of like that phrase. Um, (laughs) Slogans without solutions are the ingredients of today's politics.
2: How can America renew democracy or restore the kind of trust that's essential for governance? We've been exploring that on how do we fix it. And this show today is the second of three episodes looking at efforts to bridge divides and reduce misunderstanding. Richard, you went out to Iowa and now for this episode, Minnesota, to observe some work that people are doing on
1: that. Right. In the last episode, we were in Des Moines. In this episode, uh, we look at two groups in Minneapolis, Better Angels, but first living room conversations. This is for voice level. Can I just first ask you what you had for breakfast? And...
4: I did not eat breakfast this morning. It's
1: early. A coffee shop in Minneapolis.
4: My name is Tiffany Wilson Worsley.
1: And that's Worsley as in W-O-R-S-L-E-Y? Yes. Good. Okay. You're
4: a great speller. Thank you.
1: <laughs> I always thought one of the
2: reasons I went into radio is because I was a bad speller. I wouldn't have to write stuff down. I'm a bad speller. In part of her work, Tiffany facilitates discussions on race relations for living room conversations. The group, which we have profiled in earlier episodes, is dedicated to connecting across divides with what they call guided conversations.
4: I think we just have this pervasive need to just be human with one another. There's so many divides. And I think the goal is to bring us all together to get to know one another but also to grow together so living room conversations provide this safe space which is very important because when we think about what divides us it then creates this level of fear so that we create a safe space in the living room um, where we provide this platform of trust to then usher us into this uncomfortable space
1: okay so a conversation starts how does
4: it how does it work the ground rules is really about, you know, the safe space. This is how we're going to continue and proceed with the conversations. Um, so we, we lay those rules out first. And then we really just jump in with some questions on race. And then people take turns answering the question.
1: We'll hear more from Tiffany later. But first, let's jump into a conversation at Minneapolis Community and Technical College, which serves a very racially an ethnically diverse community on an urban campus.
0: My name is Jenny Sippel. I am a library faculty member at Minneapolis College.
1: We're seated around a large table. The eight participants include college faculty, staff, administration, and a student, an African-American man, Latina woman, a mixed race man, a Native American man, a Somali-American woman, two white men, and a facilitator. The subject, race.
0: Participants practice being open and curious about all perspectives with a focus on learning from one another rather than trying to debate the topic at hand.
2: They read out loud the conversation agreement. As with
1: the previous episode at the Revived Civility event in Iowa, people are urged to show respect for others, be honest, and speak to the point. They start by discussing why they're here. Naima Muhammad is one of the participants.
5: I came to this because race is, um, is a difficult topic to discuss, and this is kind of a living room conversation, so I figured it's sort of like a safe place to have this conversation, and I think it brings people together and help understand each other, and that's why I came today.
1: This is Jeff Jones, and uh, I always look forward to uh, conversations about race because it, it's a needed conversation having those frank conversations really help folks understand one another. And um, in our country, there seems to be a a profound lack of understanding of one another. And so any opportunity to kind of break through those, those interpersonal barriers, I really look forward to. For me personally, as a black man in America, race
2: is a huge part of my identity. In between rounds, Jenny Sipple, the conversation leader, calls for silent reflection before moving on to the next section, when participants are encouraged to talk about themselves and their identities. For some, race and immigration are considered together. Rosa Shannon says immigration is not just about law, but about people's lives.
3: They're not here to take away, but they're here to make a better life for themselves. I've seen this for many years, being a Mexican-American. I have seen the struggle of the Undocumented of the people coming to work to America to make a better living, um, many of them were my relatives back in, in the earlier days. However, this country needs to come together and understand that it's not just a, a Mexican issue or a Latin American issue, it's not. Immigration is everyone, it's every country. We have many people in this country that are here legally from other countries, but they're not noticed. it's the Latino population that is the highest. So many people are being hurt, you know, the whole thing that happened with the tearing the children apart from their parents just because they're here. They're here because they have a need. If their country were in in great shape, they would not be coming here.
1: What's missing here at this conversation is substantial disagreement, differences that might well have erupted in other settings. But we're at a college campus where words are often carefully chosen. That said, there are some very
2: distinctive perspectives.
0: We'll have about 20 minutes for this round.
2: Among the questions asked for the next round...
0: What is an early memory of race, not necessarily racism? Was that memory of race a positive or negative experience for you? How do you feel your race impacts your daily life? When you were growing up, how did you talk about other races? How did people around you talk about other races?
1: Jim, I've got to say here that observing this part of the conversation was humbling for me. I'm white and have lived until recently in mainly white neighborhoods. I didn't consider race as a big part of who I was. And that's what Charles Carter, also white, said as well during the conversation. pretty unfazed in my life. Race is not nearly as relevant. I don't have to address it every single day.
6: try to recognize race. You know, I'm not like, oh, everybody's the same color, blah, 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 blah. But no, I I try to think about it differently in terms of, like, humanism. You know, we're all people. But uh, I haven't had a constant fuel kind of inflaming a paradigm of race
2: in my life. And so, therefore, it's not really a a paradigm that comes up. Jay Williams had a very different experience. His dad was black, his mother white. I know there was a
6: family meeting in Hutchinson on my maternal side before they got married to decide if they would accept it or not and they did i know that the town newspaper uh put my picture on the front page black baby born in Hutchinson in third grade i really didn't know completely what it was to be black and uh we had a parent teacher principal meeting I'd received a C in English, and my mother gave the principal a stack of papers with A's on it and asked the the teacher, how did he get this grade? Well, that's the best I thought a boy like him could do. And my mom said, what do you mean, a a black boy? And she said yes.
2: Rosa Shannon also spoke about her early memories of race.
3: I was raised in Oklahoma as a child until I was in my teen years, and... um, more early in life, I learned that uh, we were classified, and the neighborhoods showed where everybody lived. Uh, there was the white neighborhoods, there were the Mexican neighborhoods, there were the American Indian neighborhoods, and there were the black neighborhoods, and it seems like the black neighborhood was always the poorest of all of them. And even though we went to school with everybody that, that was in these neighborhoods, we were always seen as second-class citizens and never felt like we were good enough.
1: Randy Gresick is an American Indian. He shares this childhood memory of what happened before Thanksgiving when he was in a Minneapolis primary school.
4: And I was the only American Indian student in my class. So one of my earliest memories of race was, you know, during November, they like to do the Pilgrims and Indians first Thanksgiving. And also when the teacher was assigning roles, I didn't have a choice. They said, okay, you're going to be our... American Indian for sure. Everybody else got to choose, like, do you want to be a pilgrim or do you want to be an Indian? Do you want to be a good guy or a bad guy? Of course, my race was already assigned to me. And then being the only American Indian student in that grade, um, we never talked about anything that was American Indian in education, Nothing. I think there might have been two paragraphs throughout the history books.
2: Randy says he was disappointed his parents didn't send him to a Native American school and he didn't start learning about his people's culture until high school. Somali-American Naima Mohammed responded to the question about how race affects her daily life.
5: I feel like that question I could divide it into two, directly and indirectly. What do I mean by indirectly? So like my brother, he's a year younger than me and we normally communicate by texting each other. And any time he calls me, I freak out. I'm like, oh, what happened? Like, like, did something happen to him?
1: Her brother delivers packages for Amazon, sometimes in mainly white neighborhoods, and she worries about him.
5: And then as far as directly, I feel like sometimes I find myself having to have answers for some things that other Somalis have done, um, for the Somali community in general, to defend them, to give people reason to be like, oh, this is why they did this, or or for that matter, like, educate them.
2: In the final round of the hour-long conversation, the participants agreed they'd like to meet again, Jeff Jones and Rosa Shannon. So I think this is a really good starting point. So maybe we can reconvene
1: or something like that um, and continue this. I think that would make it a more richer experience.
3: It's been a great conversation. I really want to continue this conversation, but I would uh, recommend that you have these conversations to small groups with students everywhere. I think it's so important that our students learn to talk to each other and understand each other and understand each other's background, because that's part of how we're going to change this world, is that we learn to talk with each other and listen to each other. Definitely. I do love the living room conversations.
1: Many living room conversations last much longer than an hour. Jenny Sipple, the facilitator or conversation leader, said that they help build connection through vulnerability.
0: I find that this framework allows us to go really deep really quickly. <laughs> we haven't even been here a full hour, and I feel like, um, though I've I've shared workspace with all of you for many years, um, this is I feel so much more closer to you all in an hour than I. Do in eleven years of working here than I have with many other people that I work with.
1: Living Room Conversations at Minneapolis College. It's how do we fix it? I'm Richard Davies.
2: And I'm Jim Meggs.
1: And coming up, another group, Better Angels.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At Blue you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.
2: A relatively new kid on the block working to bridge divides and renew democracy is an organization called Better Angels. Bill Doherty, D-O-H-E-R-T-Y. He's the co-founder of Better
1: Angels.
6: Which has the mission of trying to depolarize America. Reds and blues coming together to depolarize America. And this um, divide, this polarization, has spread into our families, into our friendship groups. It's, uh, it's, it's on the ground as well as uh, in... The upper politics and it's dividing our country.
1: And what is it doing to us apart from just dividing our country?
6: Well, we, we've we've gone from having different viewpoints about politics to viewing people who are different from us as bad people.
1: And Bill Doherty says things are worse today than they were before the last election.
6: However, it's it's not just about Trump. It's been going on, and if Hillary Clinton were elected, we would still be experiencing, I believe, high levels of political polarization.
2: Better Angels' leadership is half red, half blue. Half its boards are Republicans or Republican-leaning, half are Democrats.
6: Most important right now is we do community workshops, community conversations, in which we bring seven reds and seven blues together for local workshops, either three hours or a full day, uh, the purpose of which is for them to understand each other beyond stereotypes and see if they can find common ground. And out of, out of some of those are coming Better Angels alliances. So we have about 25 alliance groups around the country now, which are people who carry on the work in the community, spread it. And they, they buy, again, by constitution, are half red and half
1: blue. Now, now skeptics are going to say, how on earth... Can you get people to agree to spend half a day or a full day on this stuff? They must be unusual people. They are people who are worried about the country.
6: When we ask people why they come, they say they're having cutoffs in their families. They're worried about how their communities are going to go. Um, uh, the f- first workshop we did was three weeks after the election. And we asked uh, the Trump voters and the Hillary voters, why did you come to this workshop? And they said, we have to get along to run our schools and our communities and build our roads and handle our parks. So these are people who are concerned about the country. They, uh, they come not to change their minds or to change everybody else's minds. And the, But these are not purple not middle ground people. We've had the head of the local Tea Party, and we have Democratic activists.
1: You said, just said something that's very striking, which is they come not to change their minds or other people's minds.
6: Yeah, this this is part of what we say in this. We advertise these. This is one of our ground rules, is we're not here to try to get the other person to change their mind. And so what happens is, uh, when we evaluate these, most people have not changed their political beliefs but they 've changed their beliefs about the other side, so i 'll tell you an example in one workshop a A guy I read, a conservative, said he never understood before that blues that that liberals actually believe that some people cheat on welfare, and that you know that it, it's it 's a problem. he never ever thought that blues thought that way, uh, similarly when you hear uh, when blues I uh, hear Reds answer the question, what are your reservations or concerns about your own side? That's one of the questions we ask. And people say, Trump. <laughs> okay. <sighs> he's disaster for conservatives.
1: That's what conservatives
6: say. Some say. And then others say, no, he's the best thing that came along. Well, if you're a blue and you leave that workshop, they're not a monolith anymore.
1: Mm. You also said that there's a big... Misunderstanding around language, around linguistics, around the way people talk about their beliefs that turn off the other side unnecessarily.
6: Yeah. So one of the one of our learnings is that how much language is colorized now? It's tribalized. Okay. so diversity, inclusion, people being marginalized, uh, people, privilege, oppression. uh, These are blue terms. In our current environment, and uh, and 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 reds go whoa! What's happening here? Example: of Red turns is patriotism, American greatness. You know these sorts of the flag, reverence for the
1: flag, and sometimes religion.
6: Yeah, sometimes you know what what God wants for our country, or we're a Christian nation. Uh, And these are when the other side hears these, this is is like, you know, fingernails on the old blackboard and they immediately get reactive. Now, what we say is it's not like we're not language police and saying don't use those terms, but be aware that that you're going to get a reaction from the other side.
1: Okay. well, I, I lean left. And I'm concerned about diversity. Yeah. How do I talk about it in a way that doesn't turn off someone who's heard those liberal catchwords and is ready to walk away?
6: Well, um, Reds love the idea of equal opportunity. America as a land of fairness where everybody has a chance to succeed. And so you can talk about having everybody on board
1: on the train to success. You have this wonderful term that you use for liberals, and liberals won't like this. <laughs> and then it's, you talk, you talk about blue
6: splaining. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that we've learned that drives reds conservatives crazy is when liberals try to educate and enlighten them about how the world really works. Like, let me explain white privilege to you. I know you may have trouble with that, but let's start with the basics. So um, there is this way in which liberals often assume that that reds simply haven't been exposed to enlightened ideas. And then they talk to them at great length,
1: slowly. On the other side, I have a a Trump-supporting relative. Yeah. How do I deal with with that, how do I try and well and, and improve that that yeah. relationship? So
6: this is the other thing we do in terms of our uh, of Better Angels work. We do skills workshops, okay, where people can uh, learn two and a half three hours. They learn skills and how to communicate with somebody. that's very different, and so one of those skills is to express curiosity to ask somebody. So um, I have a, I have a relative from Texas, uh, which is red country. Uh, And so when we get together, I say, um, I'm curious about how people are seeing Trump in your part of the world right now. And then we're into the conversation along the way. He tells me his view and I express interest and then not judgment, not judgment, interest. And then Uh, by the kind of norms of human reciprocity, if I express interest, let me see if I'm understanding this, what you're saying, how do people think about this? How do you think about that? Um, And then by the norms of human reciprocity, he's going to be more open to what I say. People have to save face. Nobody nobody wants to be portrayed as stupid, ignorant, blindly self-serving.
1: How are you doing with with Better Angels? Is it more or less successful than you thought it would be when it started just weeks after uh, Trump was elected in 2016?
6: Far more successful than I could have imagined. I mean, we have workshops going on in 25 states. We have, uh, we've had 150 workshops with tremendous media attention. Uh, We're building a a social media arm. And I've never in my career, and I've been at this a long time, have had people Beat a pathway to my door, saying, "Can we do this? Could you come and talk? Can we do workshops? Can we?" We, um, in, in my career, I've always had to convince people there's a problem. Okay, hard to do, and then if they agree, then it, my solution is worth considering. This problem, everybody knows it's there, and we have a new way to address it.
2: Bill says this combination of blue and red is crucial to Better Angels' success. Most civil conversation programs.
6: Are created by blues. That's 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 the blues' um, bailiwick. and the language. If you look on websites, if you look on our website, you do not see a lot of blue language or red language about what we call us workshops. Okay, um, and uh, we don't use language like authenticity, being authentic in conversation. But the blue language is all over the place. Uh, And we we teach our moderators to not introduce that language. It's not in our workshops. It's not in the materials.
2: Bill Doherty, who says that change in America will come from local citizens groups and filter up to the state capitals in Washington.
1: Before we end in Minneapolis, I want to go back to the first person we spoke to, Jim, Tiffany Wilson Worsley, who had a few thoughts on Donald Trump that may surprise you. She suggests that having him as president is an opportunity
4: absolutely never in history have we ever had anyone as bold and crazy as him if you think about it we americans we are bold people we are courageous people and we're really crazy we are crazy right a lot of times we can hide our crazy because we get to vote for a person who fits the standard but now americans say we're not voting for the standard anymore we voted for ourselves and so now that we get an opportunity to look at ourselves now we can fix ourselves If we choose to, this is an opportunity to fix ourselves. if we want to, and I think we can. Because
1: you say Trump is bold and crazy, that expands the opportunities of conversation, or it expands our sense of who we
4: really are as a country? So first it expands who we are as a country. Right, we we know our history. Our history is not beautiful, but we've been able to kind of brush it under the table and, and change strategies that they may we may not call it Jim Crow, but it's some some of the very same strategies that exist in a very not as covert as they were in the past
1: that, that were politely put under the rug. Exactly, that we don't talk
4: about. We don't. And, and- now is an opportunity now to talk about it because we experience it every day. I mean, when you think about a lot of the things that Trump is saying. A lot of people believe it. A lot of times we've probably suppressed it, but it's inside of us. So when I say we're crazy, it's because there's a lot of things that we suppress in ourselves. When I think about for the very first time in 2010, I hugged a white baby. I was shocked. I was like, wait, this white baby just hugged me. I've never hugged a white kid before. That was shocking to me in 2010 so it's that doesn't mean I was walking around saying I don't like white people they were not my preference for sure but that was in me that doesn't make me a bad person it just means that I didn't have exposure that I needed and so for me it's based on my experience there's a lot of people still to this day that don't have exposure to their difference right and what's the opportunity from that It is for us to continue to jump into these conversations and offer our experiences and then make ourselves available to support others as they go through this transition. Because I think it is a transition that we've never had an opportunity to address. Now is the opportunity to address it. Now it's time for me to talk to you. Right? And I could talk to you about my differences with you and what I believed about you, even though I've never met you. Oh,
1: Surely you thought I was... Nice guy.
4: Right, from New York, right? The rude white male from New York, right? Who don't talk to people. So that's, right, exactly. But now I feel I'm comfortable to do that, right? (laughs) I've never heard that.
2: Tiffany Wilson-Worsley. What do you think of that, Jim? Well, I love her idea that we're what she calls bold Americans, and that by being bold Americans, we can handle having somebody we don't like in the White House or handle hearing ideas we don't like, and we can come back strong. We don't have to be cowed and intimidated.
1: Yeah, I think the idea of of living room conversations is to establish ground rules first so that you have a little structure uh, to build a difficult conversation.
2: It's okay to talk to people you don't agree with. I think we get hung up on trying to change people's minds, you know, and basically argue with them about about their beliefs. and And what we see in these discussions is shut up for a minute, listen, and that when they do this, they find out that these people on the other side – don't seem like such bad people. You might still think they're wrong, but you don't think they're evil.
1: These discussions are about race, which is a topic we have not dealt with very much so far on how do we fix it. And and for many people, their racial identity... Or their identity as an immigrant is held very deeply and has been front of mind since childhood. I think it's easy for people of privilege, like us, to urge others to be more rational or maybe more open-minded
2: or less tribal,
1: but identity is very powerful.
2: Yeah, it is such a tough subject and one that we're not necessarily best positioned to to be experts on. But I do recommend that listeners go back and listen to our interview with Francis Fukuyama, who wrote this fascinating book about identity and identity politics. And he believes that we're actually sliding backwards towards I- uh, making racial characteristics and other forms of identity too central to our discussions of who people are. He thinks that's unhealthy. Everyone's an individual. They can form their own ideas. Their background, their history is part of who they are, maybe part they're very proud of, but it shouldn't define them.
1: Yeah, and he speaks as the son of Japanese Americans who were interned
2: during World War II. That's. Well, I found that kind of amazing in his discussion. Um, I mean, he's clearly someone from a minority background who doesn't feel limited or defined by his ethnicity at all. But one thing I want to get back to in this discussion is this idea of ground rules, that you can't just jump into a difficult conversation about really polarizing topics with people without some idea of what your goals are. Yeah, and and, and
1: that's what's actually happening here with both Better Angels and Living Room Conversations. And I think they're vital, especially on college campuses, as a way of promoting understanding and even viewpoint diversity. I I see the work of this group as being very much in harmony with, with Heterodox Academy. We spoke with Deb Mashak in an earlier episode.
2: I urge people to visit both on our website and on their websites. There are some of these ground rules that they use for conversations and to me the the number one thing is are you able to respond to the idea the person is presenting without making reference to some moral category that you want to put the speaker in. And we'll have links to both of those groups on our website for this show. This is How Do We Fix It, where we talk solutions. And thanks to our friends at Solutions Journalism Network for their encouragement and support. We are grateful for that. Find out more about their work at solutionsjournalism.org. And also we're
1: grateful to Jessica Chirac, who is a super connector in Minneapolis. She introduced me both to Tiffany and to Bill and helped to organize that living room
2: conversation at Minneapolis College. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our senior producer here in New York is Miranda Schaefer, musical arrangement by Lou Stravinsky. And we're a production of Davies Content. Find out more about our services for podcasts,
1: for digital audio, and for media training at daviescontent.com.
0: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans.